Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Kenya and Somalia are trying to mend fences over a disputed maritime border. Will this latest handshake stick? And Senegalese President Macky Sall has extended an olive branch to his opponents. What's motivating this about-face? Plus, we discuss the importance of African languages in our third episode with African Arguments. How should the United States incorporate local languages into its diplomatic efforts? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. In late September, at the UN General Assembly, Egyptian President al-Sisi presided over a three-way handshake with his Kenyan and Somali counterparts. This was to mend fences between the two neighbors over their maritime border. The question is, is Egypt's play the start of a diplomatic reset or just a photo op? Joining me today to discuss Somali-Kenyan tensions and other topics is Njala Nyabola, a humanitarian advocate, political analyst, and author of Digital Democracy, Analog Politics, How the Internet Era is Transforming Kenya. Catherine Kelly, a professor at the African Center for Strategic Studies, ACSS, and author of Party Proliferation and Political Constant Station in Africa, Senegal in Comparative Perspective. And Michelle Wagner, a State Department analyst. This is also our third episode in partnership with African Arguments. Okay, I'm going to bring everyone up to speed a little bit. There have been disputes between Kenya and Somalia over the land and maritime border for a very long time, dating all the way back to colonial period. And I would say usually it's at a low simmer, but it does intensify, particularly when their Somali insecurity sort of spills over the border. This one is a little different, and this is a dispute over a very narrow triangle off the coast of the Indian Ocean, about 62,000 square miles in area. It supposedly has a great deal of oil and gas, and both countries claim it as sovereign territory. The dispute was referred to the International Court of Justice in 2014. In February, the situation escalated when Nairobi decided to cut diplomatic ties with Mogadishu over a claim that the latter had auctioned oil blocks located in the disputed border area. My administration continues to reach out to the Federal Republic of Somalia in an effort to find an amicable and sustainable solution to the maritime boundary disputes between us. In this regard, I welcome the decision of the African Union Peace and Security Council of the 3rd September 2019 that urges both parties to engage. Njala, I would love to hear what the view from Nairobi is. Is this really brinkmanship? Um, Can we be optimistic about the Egyptian intervention? I think the underlying issue really is all of these three countries have geopolitical strategic reasons for getting involved in this issue. As you've said, this is a this is a crisis that you know ends up in a low boil for a long period of time and then comes to a rapid boil very quickly intermittently. It's something that's long running between Kenya and Somalia and then at the same time you have Al-Sisi who is having to establish himself as a diplomatic force on the continent having been more Middle Eastern facing for so many years, trying to make overtures within the continent to try and establish Egypt, especially during the AU presidency, as a diplomatic force. So there's a lot going on in the background that doesn't have much to do with the oil block per se. From the outside looking in, it does look like a lot of brinksmanship from both sides. These are two countries that have a very strange sibling sort of relationship in that they fight 
passionately and then they make up passionately. The Kenyan has always almost had the position that it's, you know, we are the only people who are allowed to pick on Somalia, which is a very sort of sibling-like relationship. I'm the only one who is allowed to pick on my siblings. And it's going to be quite difficult diplomatically, I think, to find a good way forward using force or the threats of force. So I think that at some point they knew that they had to come to the table. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I think a lot of citizen um, sentiment is deeply divided on this issue. Um, I think Kenyan military intervention, you know, being there with Amistam, having been there for a long time, complicates the issue further. Um, because Mogadishu is dependent on Kenyan security apparatus for its own security and having not secured the whole country. So, yes, a slight element of brinksmanship, but also just a complex manifestation of two countries that are constantly up and down with their diplomatic relations. Injala, I think that is a really good way to frame this problem. And I particularly like the the sibling rivalry metaphor. And I don't know if that makes the Kenyan press the bratty neighbor or the older sibling <laughs> that is just poking at the two because I've just been knocked out by how relentless the press has been on this issue. Uh, they're hammering Kenyatta, right? The East African published an article that said Somalia still gives President Kenyatta a headache as it did to his father. And then the Daily Nation came a day later with how Kenya bungled Somalia border talks. So, I, I mean, one of my things is the Kenyan press is goading uh, the government not to compromise. And considering all of the points that you just made, how many important elements uh, are wrapped up in this relationship, not just whatever oil and gas there may or may not be uh, under the sea, but dealing with al-Shabaab and extremism in the region, the issue around uh, the Somali refugee population. Michelle, I know that this isn't your expertise, but can these two countries work on these other important sets and then sort of put on the other side, this border dispute. I mean, they treat them separately, do the good work that they need to do on cooperation and extremism and dealing with the refugee population, and at the same time work through a very deliberative process that hopefully won't boil over. Speaking from a State Department point of view, there's always room for mediation, and there's always room for finding a common ground. (laughs) It's the thing I've learned at State. But as Nanjala said, this sibling rivalry dimension countries will have long lists of grievances against each other. I often use the spouse analogy, like we've been married, we have these lists of grievances, and it's hard for us to separate them, the issue at hand, because there's all this backstory and all this luggage. So it takes some help to be able to do that. For some countries, depending on um, where they are in their larger relationship, they can't do it. Everything is organically connected, and they can't really separate the current conflict from their lists of grievances. But with some facilitation, kind of like counseling, <laughs> they can. And the key is to find the very the places where they have common ground in order to then increase that area little by little until they're touching upon those other issues. Angela, does that sound right to you? I think so. I feel like it's very difficult for the Kenyan Diplomatic Service, for example, to separate the military of what Kenya is doing in Somalia from the diplomatic arm to separate what's happening with refugees, for example, with what's happening with Amazon in Mogadishu and Somalia in general, to separate that from the maritime dispute as well. There's so many layers of interconnection between these two countries 
that it's going to be very difficult to say, well, we're going to be antagonists on one side and then we're going to be best friends on the other side. Kat, Njala mentioned a legal dimension to this. And, you know, you worked with the American Bar Association, you're a professor of justice, rule of law. Is there a way to look at this just through a legal lens or can you not really divorce it from the other issues we're talking about? I think separating the legal element will also be somewhat difficult. And I think the current iteration of this conflict of this situation seems like a particularly difficult one because on the one hand, Somalia is saying we went to the ICJ because attempts to resolve this conflict otherwise have failed and they want to keep the court case in The Hague. And then on the other hand, you have Kenya who allegedly prefers some form of mediation and says, in fact, before we went to the ICJ, maybe we should have tried to exhaust other forms of mediation um, or dispute resolution through the African Union or the regional economic communities. So from a rule of law perspective, in-court settlements and alternative forms of dispute resolution are both potentially legitimate solutions to this from a legal perspective. But getting to a settlement can be really difficult when the parties to a dispute don't even agree on the type of dispute resolution procedure that they want going forward. So I would suggest thinking about it in similar ways that Michelle and Nanjala were already talking about, focusing on widening the angle of dialogue between the two countries to other issues perhaps of shared economic interest or security and strategic interest. So one thought is, of course, there's interest in the East African community on both ends. Somalia would like to join. Kenya is interested in the EAC doing effective peace and security work. Are there ways there to sort of widen the angle we're looking at? There may also be potentially shared interest in doing something like managing maritime resources better collectively. So That could be oil and gas or cooperation on facilitating maritime communities development um, in relation to megatrends like urbanization or the youth bulge or climate change. Well, the good news is I'm going to Kenya in just a couple of weeks. I will solve all of these problems for everyone (laughs) and then I'll report back on how I did. I want to move to Senegal because back in episode seven, we discussed the pre-election environment, and there's been a lot of churn uh, since uh, way back when in February. President Saul won a second term. He got rid of the prime minister position. His brother resigned for being involved in allegedly corrupt oil deal. And then all of a sudden, he's on a charm offensive. He's reconciled, at least reportedly, with his predecessor, Abdullah Wad. He's pardoned his chief rival, Khalifa Saul, no relationship, who used to be the mayor of Dakar. The former mayor of Dakar, Khalifa Saul, was hailed by jubilant supporters as he crossed the Senegalese capital in a convoy during the night. I've been scratching my head, and I'm really glad that Kat's here, because you can tell us what in the world <laughs> is going on. And here's where I am. Yeah. Saul should be sitting pretty, right? The election's in 2024. He's got plenty of time. Rivals out of the picture. And the West loves him. So why? Why reach out to them now? Like, how do we understand this this recent reconciliation? Senegal Sufi Muslim leaders have definitely exercised some leverage on President Saul as of recently. So part of the story here is that it was the Khalifa general of the Maurids, so the head of one of Senegal's major Sufi religious orders, who facilitated first this reconciliation between ex-president Abdoulaye Wad and current president Saul. And around the same time, it was at the same Maurid leader's request that the president pardoned Khalifa Saul and two of his associates. So 
A little bit of background on the context of this pardon, because it's a twist in a years-long feud. Khalifa Saul, very popular mayor from Dakar, from the opposition, was found guilty of forgery and fraudulent use of public funds. This is based on the allegation that he created false receipts to balance the mayor's office special cash advance funds, which he said he was using for constituency service and social services that his constituents needed on the fly. His defense in court argued that politicians have been using these cash advance funds like this since times of independence under Senghor, and that Saul Taboot had not used those funds for private gain, so he shouldn't be charged. Nevertheless, he was sentenced to five years in prison, fined $8,400 approximately, and also he and his associates, including the ones who were pardoned recently, owe $300 million back to the state to replace the cash from these funds that supposedly they had used for illicit purposes. This all happens in the run-up to the 2019 presidential elections, and there were, of course, then accusations that this was a politically motivated charge designed to take out the person who was seen to be informally as one of the major potential challengers from the opposition. So because of all this, the pardon is a big deal. But then again, the pardon is not nearly everything here. So we got to figure out what's happening if he has to pay the money back still. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, he did do us one favor, which is that it's so hard for people in Washington to focus on politics, you know, in between the long election cycles. And so I'm thrilled that he's giving us another opportunity to talk about Senegalese politics. Exactly. Now, I want to move to our main topic today. Back in May, African Arguments published a Living in Translation series which featured segments on Amharic, Kiswahili, Mauritian Creole, Nigerian Pidgin, Hassiana Arabic. And Injala, you were the editor. You invited six writers to show, as you said, uh, that language is more than a string of words. It defines the shape of our world. Can you walk us through the concept, uh, why you decided to oversee this, and what were the key takeaways? Um, for me, it's always been a passion project. Language has always been something that has fascinated me. I grew up sort of in between um, multiple languages. Uh, like most Kenyans, I grew up speaking three languages and sort of picked up a couple more um, during my professional life. And I found... I find that it really, I know that I'm a different person. I know that I can be funnier in some languages than I am in others. I can be more intellectual in some languages than in others. And everybody who speaks multiple languages knows this. We express different parts of our personalities differently depending on what languages we're speaking. And so what I was curious about is what this looks like from a mass sort of sociological perspective. What is this, What does the big picture look like if each of us is manifesting differently? in our different languages. And I, we wanted to have writers from different countries where language is a point of contestation and where the connection between language and identity is really, really evident. So where things, ideas of identity are built, for example, in Western Sahara, which is doesn't have the traditional um, tools that we use to construct a national identity. It doesn't have a, a country, right? It's, it's still under occupation. There's all of that politics around that. What role does language play in constructing a Western Saharan identity? And the, the whole point was really to give people an entry point to thinking creatively about how African countries are made and what makes a country and what builds a country and what unites a country. And it was just a really fun process for myself, thinking, but also learning and hearing from people who have 
uh, amazing insights and, and hopefully sort of broadening the conversation of where African politics happens. I love the series. And of course, I spent most of the time with the Nigerian pigeon section, but I love the way that uh, the author talked about how it was this great uh, equalizer between the Ogas, the big men, and uh, and folks on the on the street level. It was just, a, I mean, all of them are f- fantastic, particularly your prologue. But one of the things that you said in it is that you don't have a grand objective. And uh, this podcast always has an agenda. And in this particular case, I wanted to use, Injala, your excellent work to make this point about how difficult it is to understand African societies to develop policy without an appreciation for these various languages, how how people communicate and think differently in languages. Now, I'm not going to talk about how I studied Zulu for three years because I, 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 I boasted about that last episode, but I did, and I can't speak a word of Zulu anymore, but I do think it helped me as an analyst just to understand sentence construction in a Bantu language. Now, Catherine, you actually did real work uh, with local languages um, as a doctoral student and then at the ABA. Can you share some of the experiences that you had and how it benefited your work? Sure. So as a doctoral student, I learned Wolof, which is one of the lingua franca in Senegal, to do research on contemporary party politics and opposition politics there. And I just published a book um, that Judd mentioned at the beginning of the podcast all about this with Palgrave. So for that project, I did hundreds of elite interviews, quite a bit of archival research, and I was comparatively analyzing quite a few different political parties in Senegal. And I would argue that each part of my research was richer and better because I knew Wolof. So for one thing, interacting with people in Wolof in general really enhanced my perspective as a researcher in Senegal. For example, I lived for a year and a half with a Senegalese family in a neighborhood where when you ran into people on the street, most people would speak Wolof to you. Um, And that's what casual conversation, um, that was the currency of casual conversation. So this really helped me understand not only municipal political context that I was interested in, but also just people's daily outlooks on life, which is also a really important thing to understand when you're trying to understand politics in in a different society than your own. So um, there's that. And then more pragmatically, Knowing Wolof and speaking with people was instrumental in giving me access to the people I officially wanted to interview. So it was really the local language that set the tone for people's openness and generosity in speaking with me. At one point, I was just good enough to go on a local Wolof-speaking radio show, Wolof language radio show. It was pretty cool. I got invited by someone I interviewed on um, the ex-ruling party, the PDS, and it was a show called Batu Askanwi, The Voice of the People. So overall, I think people were more interested in me and why I was writing about Senegal when I was able to show that I was trying to work every day in a language that they were using both inside and outside of work. It's also clear in Senegal that the government is starting to recognize Once again, the importance of enabling local languages in institutions that are usually officially French-speaking. So I want to use the parliament as an example because I spend a lot of time there um, in the National Assembly, doing work in the archives, making friends with the technical assistants and chasing parliamentarians down to get them to sit with me and talk. So when there's a parliamentary debate in the Senegalese parliament, people who chose to express themselves or their constituents' preferences in Wolof or Pular, Sarah or Diola, They could, the parliamentarians themselves, the technical assistants, were allowed to videotape them or record them visually Mm -hmm. giving that speech. Okay. But when they were transcribing what was said back then, 
um, that remained off the record. Anything that was not said in French remained off the record. Interesting. So there were rules about that that were pretty strict. Now, since then, as of late 2014, I've noticed there are new laws on the books, and the assembly has started doing simultaneous interpretation between French and some of these local languages and vice versa, recognizing that equal opportunity is important, an important principle when we're thinking about who speaks what in parliament. That's really interesting. And Michelle, you've used language as well in your research before you joined the the State Department, and um, you've gotten very different reactions, right, depending on which languages you've used? Yes. My background, I'm an oral historian, and I worked in Burundi and then in Tanzania. So I did my uh, dissertation research in Kirundi and French, and postdoctoral research in Kiha and English and Kiswahili. So I've got experience with different languages in different contexts. I would say, first with government, I'll start with that, um, that when I use uh, an African language, I'm signaling that I'm really listening. And often when I use an African language, it's not just the language, it's the way that you're using the language. It's like the register, um, how polite you are. If you greet somebody as a respected elder, you're immediately showing, you're signaling that you really have respect for this person. It's not just hi, hi. And with your register, for me as a woman, I'll speak more softly. I'll speak in a way that shows that I'm aware of tradition. And what that does is say, not only can I speak with you, I understand underneath what it is that you're thinking and what norms are. I think that creates a much warmer and closer meeting. And so in many diplomatic contexts, it really works well. In Rwanda, knowing Kenya Rwanda when I was there working as a human rights monitor was a bit of a problem because it signaled that I understood things that usually the international community shouldn't understand. So at the beginning, I was very reticent to speak any. I didn't really speak Kinyarwanda. I spoke Kirundi, but it was enough to understand Kinyarwanda. If I didn't speak it, though, and then later I spoke it, people would feel like, what is going on here? However, if I did speak it immediately, it could actually set off authorities because it it was signaling, I, I know. So in your translation of what the person is saying, you know, be careful. So it kind of would create a kind of cat and mouse tension. But in other examples, um, when I've helped to facilitate joint planning between the U.S. military and the Congolese military, when they were planning medical exercises, when I spoke Swahili in that situation, it was mixed. In Congo, there's a difference between the West, where people speak Lingala, and the East, where people speak Swahili. And so I was orienting myself toward the East. And for military, uh, Lingala has been the military language, and many of the people I was, was talking with were from the West. So it could be a bit of a problem because it was orienting me in their, the war that they were having. However, it also said that I'm listening to you, and I understand some things. And so it calmed people down sometimes, depending on the way that I used it, because it meant I'm not just another military person coming in here to tell you what to do. I'm actually listening to you. I want to speak to you in your language. And this is going to be a little bit different than what you were expecting. And it really helped me to facilitate There was sociolinguistics that went on with the language. For example, very, very different ways of American military and Congolese military in negotiating. Mm -hmm. In Congo, when you negotiate in the market, 
you start out with something really big and negotiate to the middle. So the Congolese military might start out with a very big demand, knowing that they would move toward the middle. For the U.S., they were used to going in a straight line, saying exactly what they wanted and expecting that that would happen. And so we had very different negotiating styles going on that could lead to a misunderstanding. So sometimes the sociolinguistics involved in that has its own dynamic. So I think this gets to the the crux of today's topic, and it's, you know, how do diplomats and analysts uh, think and use language? Now, like Michelle, we have diplomats and even ambassadors who speak local languages. Former ambassador to Nigeria actually did an interview in Pidgin. I was always really impressed when I worked in the White House that President Obama always wanted to start any speech to an African audience uh, in with a Habari if he's in Kenya, but he was, and we had to go figure out what Hello and Sango was when he did his interview for Carr. And Angela, I think you're the perfect person to help us wrap this up. There's so much, as you pointed out, that's sort of inside these languages, so much hidden context, so much socioeconomic dynamics that we may not be aware of. But it's also about trying to bridge a gap culturally between U.S. policymakers, U.S. diplomats, and African counterparts. Is there a good way to do this? What would you recommend to people who are trying to learn languages and also not to bungle it uh, and, and not to get themselves even in more hot water? I believe that Toni Morrison has probably said it best when she said, we exist, that may be the meaning of our lives, but we do language and that may be the measure of our lives. I think language is a really important way of establishing a connection with another human being, regardless of the context. It's often said that the the shortest way to get to someone else's heart is to use their own name and especially to use their name in their own language the way that they would like for it to be used. I think that the importance of learning a language in the context where you work cannot be overstated. It really is about building empathy and building connection and demonstrating an interest in not just um, extracting information or extracting perspective or extracting um, a knowledge from a context, but showing that you're actually interested in how people conduct their lives and how people live their lives. And like I said um, at the beginning, you know, I grew up speaking three languages. I now speak eight. And I know that I'm a different person in each and every one of those languages And if we are in Kenya, even though I speak English perfectly fluently, the easiest way to establish a connection with me would not be to speak in English, but would probably be to speak in Cheng or to speak in Swahili or to speak in my mother tongue. So it's really just about finding people at their most authentic and finding people at their most expressive and and, and showing an interest in, in connecting with people on that level. Angela, I think those are really wise words. Thank you for sharing them. I recommend to our audience that they go check out the African Arguments series. It is really eye-opening and really powerful. And I want to just thank my guests for joining me today. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.